Welcome to Southern Fried Asian. I'm your host, Keith Chow. On today's show, we'll be speaking with kid lit author Christina Suntornvat. She's the author of the 2016 middle grade novel The Changelings and its 2017 follow up. She's a native of West Texas and our guest this week on Southern Fried Asian. Check it out. Joining me on the line is Kidlit author, native Texan, the writer of The Changelings. Please welcome to Southern Fried Asian, Christina Suntornvat. Hi, Keith. Uh, thank you for being on Southern Fried Asian. I'm very excited to have you on. I love talking to Kidlit authors. Uh, we're going to have a, like a separate section of Southern Fried Asian where we talk to like children's literature people. So, <laughs> you, you... yes, I love that, <laughs> and I love the ones you've done so far with the kid lit people i love your conversation with jenny han she's so i look up to her so much she's having quite a year oh my gosh i'm just so happy for her for the show and the books and everything who knew that uh being southern fried and asian meant that you also could could be a an author yeah i well you know she i listened to her and she says she always dreamed of doing that, which I I think that's the first time I had read that about her. But mm. I I mean, I never thought of it. I never, ever thought this was going to be what I was doing. I'm assuming that you've always had an affinity for fantasy and fairy tales and children's literature. What what was that? Is that the case? Was that something that like, did you grow up reading like Tolkien or whatever? Yes, I did. That was, those were... Um, the books that I love the most were always like books about magic and fantasy. And, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to, I know you're going to ask me <laughs> all about growing up at a restaurant, but <laughs> you, I just learned grew up behind the counter yes. of your parents' restaurant. So yeah, I'm sure you know how boring it was. <laughs> <laughs> you can commiserate. Like, what were you going to do? And let it, if, if you didn't want to work, you better have a book in your hand or they were going to put you to work, right? Like right, that was right. the only way you were going to get out of it was going to be either doing your homework or reading a book, then they would leave you alone. <laughs> and that, that was your salvation. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what I did. If I wasn't like folding napkins or, um, you know, I didn't have any siblings, so I wasn't, didn't have anybody to bug or pester. And then back then, like there were no handheld video games or Mm -hmm. iPads or anything like that. So yeah, I was just reading books and, um, consumed tons of fantasy, uh, tons of books about magic and rolled doll and all of those classic English British Isles fairy tale type of books. That's what I read the most of. And so growing up as, as a Thai American kid in Texas, uh, you know, the, the other thing that a lot of us have in common when we grow up in the South in particular uh, is that we kind of grow up, you know, seemingly isolated. And, and you, you talked about being an only child. I, I consider myself an only child until my brother was born. I guess that's how it goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a, we're the parents of an only child now too. And we kind of see that like, she loves to read as well. She's a she's a big fantasy and magic and fairy tale reader. She's actually just started writing in her journal, oh, her own that's awesome. her own story. I won't say the title of it in case she, you know, tries to copyright it and I don't want to put it out there in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool title. Uh maybe we'll, we'll keep that as a as a surprise for now. But anyway, I, the the point I was trying to make is that I think it's easier to get lost in your own world when when you're by yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, yeah, I I mean, that was, 
I think, you know, I joke about reading, trying to get out of get out of work, <laughs> which probably, I mean, that probably wasn't my whole motivation for it. Um, I mean, a big part of it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and just like so much positive reinforcement. I mean, my parents just loved seeing me read, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, just pushing you towards education and, and, you know, how proud my dad was to see me reading. Um, but also, I mean, just like escape growing up, the town that I grew up in was really, really small. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a small West Texas, Northwest Texas town called Weatherford. Uh, It's like an hour and a half West of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And at the, at the time it was pretty isolated. And the reason that we moved there was because my dad had been driving through there. This is when I was like a toddler and noticed that the town had no Chinese restaurants. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that is a business opportunity. (laughs) So packed up, started this restaurant. I'm, I mean, your parents had a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Okay. But y'all were like legitimately Chinese. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we, I mean, like my dad is Thai and Chinese. He's from Chinese descent, Mm -hmm. but like at that time in 1982, Nobody had heard of Thai food. Right. So, like, you couldn't go and start a Thai restaurant. So, of course, we're going to go and, like, start a, a pretty American kind of Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. because that's what would be successful. So, when we moved there, I think there were, like, there was maybe, like, one other kid in my school who was Asian. She mm-hmm. was, like, mixed race Japanese. But other than that, that was it. And so, I was really, you know, you talk about being isolated and... uh and, and yeah, I felt really isolated being in this cowboy town. <laughs> Usually when we speak to someone from Texas, we also have to go through this rigmarole of whether or not Texas is actually considered the South. Um, being, yes. I mean, are you a native Texan? Did you, were you born and raised in Texas or was, I, you said you moved to, to Weatherford. Was it from another part of Texas or? Yeah, we moved from like the Dallas Metroplex area. So I'm born and raised Texan <laughs> and I was prepared for your, for your question because I know what people say about Texas not being the South. Yeah. Um, and my grandparents actually are from East Texas, which is, is the South. Like yeah. if you ever go to East Texas, so different from anywhere else um, in the state. Uh, it's way more like Louisiana. So I feel I feel comfortable being on Southern Fried Asian <laughs> podcast. Like I'm not I'm not backing down that I have a right to be on the podcast. Sure. I mean, um, you, you know, <laughs> south of the Mason Dixon line, man. We we have a yeah. very wide berth of what, what we can <laughs> yeah. consider. But definitely, stuff. I mean, the town I grew up in, it was much more like ranch cowboy. Mm-hmm. It's it's its own thing. Texas is its own place. I mean, yeah, I mean really that's a, that's different. a consensus. <laughs> Texas is actually its own country and we should recognize it as such. Yeah. But it does <laughs> I mean, it, it does, people who are serious about that. Too. Well, it's, and it does because it's so large, it does encompass so many different, I mean, there's parts of it that's very midwestern. There's parts of it's very southwestern. Of course, there's you know as you said, East Texas is very much in the Louisiana, uh, you know, Gulf of Mexico kind of uh, culture. And and yeah. and and you know, I mean, politically, it's all over the place. I mean, hopefully this year, maybe maybe it's starting to turn a little purple, maybe a little blue. Who knows? Beto for Texas. Um, I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are parts that are so diverse. I yeah. mean, like. Houston is like the most diverse city, one of the most diverse cities right. in America. So, um, a lot of so, Asian yeah, Americans in Texas, a lot of, you know, it, it's kind of twofold what we talk about here on the podcast because, you know, we mentioned being isolated, we mentioned growing up in small towns, but 
by that same token, there are parts of the South that are heavily Asian American that you may not think so in first blush, right? That like you mentioned Houston um, and other parts of the country that think of like Atlanta, Georgia, or, you know, Virginia Beach, Virginia, there are like whole pockets of Asian American communities scattered throughout the South too. So it's, it's very interesting how, how diverse the South can be and, and not the kind of monochromatic perception that a lot of people have of what the South is. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, actually I have a story. I have a, I have to tell you a still quick story. Yeah. This is like totally veering off track, but, um, it was like maybe like three or four weeks ago I was with my family and we went to West Texas, like far West Texas. Mm-hmm. Like I live in Austin and we drove like eight hours through nothing <laughs> to get to this state park where we are staying. And we were in this teeny tiny town called Alpine. I don't know what the population is, but it's so small. And, um, and we were walking back from like a gas station and I saw there's like a, a food trailer and it's a Thai food trailer. <laughs> and my, you know, we had been eating like, like chicken fried steak sorts of things for a week or whatever. And I'm just like dying all for a Thai iced tea. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I go up and I order it and I talk to the lady. She's really nice. I say hello in Thai. And then, so she brings me my iced tea and she's like oh we only take cash well I didn't have any cash I never carry cash with me and I was like you know this is so funny but I just got back from Thailand from a trip to visit my family and the only cash I have in my wallet is Thai money (laughs) is Thai bot and I was just like like it's okay I don't you know I don't need to order it like I was just kind of making a joke and she was like well actually I'm going home next month and I need some cash like you can pay me in Thai bot so I paid for this Thai iced tea and Thai money in the middle of the Texas desert. It was like the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. Kismet. It was so cool. What's yeah, the exchange rate though? Did you end up like paying like $30 for this cup of iced tea? <laughs> you know, I really did. I just gave it all to her and she was like, this is too much. I'm like, what am I going to do with it? Like you have to take it. Like, <laughs> you know, so I hope it yeah, was, it was delicious. A good feeling. It was the best, the best Thai tea I've ever had. <laughs> But, you know, and what's here's what's really interesting, too, about East Texas is that East Texas is very much the rural, not Austin, <laughs> not oh, Houston yeah. part of Texas. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I mentioned Beto, like I see sign, I see yard signs for Beto in East Texas. Oh, that makes me feel really so, good. Do you know what I'm saying? So like it's it just anecdotally, it's like, wow, maybe there is something in the uh, brewing in the air down there. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily like a. Uh, hopeless cause um anyway right i hope so <laughs> so you you grew up with this this love of fantasy and magic yet your background is in stem how do you reconcile science and magic right well um i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how this happened to me <laughs> well, there's um, a line in the thor movie there's a line that he says to uh natalie portman's character where he says Magic is just science you haven't uh, understood yet or something like that. So maybe there, maybe that's the connection. Oh, I like that. Well, you know, this is this may come as a complete shock to you, but a lot of people who are science geeks read fantasy books. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. It's so weird. <laughs> so, so not the stereotype. Um, no, I, yeah. So I, when I went off to college, I studied engineering. Um, and I, my plans were always to be like a scientist or an engineer. And that was, you know, I think pretty much classic child of immigrants. I've been given this 
this ticket to college and I need to make the most of it. And the most of it seemed to be doing something like that. That was like never an option for my parents, even for, you know, my mom who grew up pretty poor, um, even though, you know, she was American, she was born here. So that was always the plan. And it just at, at one point I came up with an idea for a book and, uh, and I was like 27, 28 and decided I was going to write it down. And I didn't, I didn't have a plan for it to be published. I was just going to like write this story for my nieces. It was inspired by them. And I was just gonna, you know, make it a bedtime story for them. And then got pretty sucked into the whole, just the whole process. And it wrote a whole book and researched how to, how to become published, started taking classes, started going to writers meetings. And a short 10 years later, got the book published. <laughs> so, sh- yeah, short, short, short 10 years. Yeah. Overnight yeah. success. It just took it. Overnight. Yeah. Overnight success of 10 years later. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I never, I never really thought of myself as a writer or an artist. That to me was just not, I, that was not a possibility that was open for me. I mean, it, it just didn't fit with my identity at all. My identity was, math and science. Mm-hmm. And I never thought that the two could cross. And of course, like it's not mutually exclusive at all. These are these little silos, these convenient little boxes that we put things in. But the human brain, you know, the, your soul doesn't fit into a box. Like right. you're so many things. And so, yeah, you can love math and be great at math and also love stories and, and be great at stories. And But yeah, it's kind of a surprise. I, I actually, I just had my 20th high school reunion like two days ago. Uh-huh. And so going back and seeing all these people that I hadn't seen in 20 years and they were like, you're writing books now? Like what? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, didn't, didn't think that that was what you're going to be doing. So it's kind of kind of a trip to be doing that. And you mentioned, you know, your first inclination was just I'm just going to write these, you know, books for or these stories for my niece. Was it was the children's audience always something that you had in mind when it came to writing something? Was it always like I want to write if I'm going to write these stories, I want to write specifically for for young adults and children? Yeah, I mean, like that after the first the first experience of finishing a book and um, and and going through that that process of writing a novel, I just really got hooked. And then, you know, I say it was a real surprise, but then I start looking back on, on my life and all of the steps I've taken in my life. And it's not as much of a surprise when you look back and reflect, like I have always worked with kids, you know, even after I I graduated, I left engineering to become to work in science museums Mm. and essentially when you're working in a museum you're telling stories Mm. you know you're taking you're taking whatever content is if you're going to like work on a dinosaur exhibit you have to tell a story even though it's a science story you have to interpret it for the people who are coming to the museum so that was my job that's like what exactly what i did was storytelling you know i was always a babysitter or a nanny in college <laughs> and i would always tell bedtime stories and make up stories for kids and so it wasn't it's not too far out of left field when i track it back that way and then too like i feel like you know when your parents are immigrants and they've left this place behind 
I've talked to a lot of people whose parents immigrated to the U.S., and we all talk about how our parents told so many stories. Mm -hmm. Like, we were just surrounded by these stories growing up because I think they they didn't want to forget, and they wanted us to know what it was like. And, you know, for a kid growing up in a cowboy town in Texas, hearing stories about Bangkok in the 40s and 50s, you know, what it was like to grow up there— that's like a fantasy story, yeah. you know, it's like magical. It's so different. So my dad was just, he still is such a great storyteller, but he was just filling my head with stories <laughs> from an early age. And it's interesting too, when you think about, you know, we, we do, you talked about putting people in boxes and everything and we put, you know, we categorize literature as like, this is children's literature. This is young adult. This is adult fiction. And, but you know, especially in the, in the times we live today, you know, you mentioned Jenny Han and like, Young adult books, children's literature, like they are as mainstream as any kind of genre. Something like To All the Boys I've Loved Before, something like Harry Potter, Percy Jackson. You see 30 year olds on the subway reading those books as much as you see like 11 year olds, you know, on the school bus. Yeah, no, I totally. I mean, a great story is a great story is a great story. And I mean, I read to my kids, my daughters are five and eight. And so we're doing a lot of like reading novels aloud. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just love them. They're like my favorite books or some of the the kids novels that are coming out right now. Um, It's yeah. So I think if you're if you're doing it right, it's not just for children. (laughs) But I do want to I do want to have a caveat in there because I feel like there are some people who write children's books, Mm. but they're actually writing them for adults. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm not. That's not like that's not like my style. There are differences that you can't you can't really put certain things in what's considered a children's book. Right. Like. (laughs) Yeah. More more mature adult themes shouldn't be in a children's book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. I don't know. I, I also feel like the cool thing about writing for children right now is that, like, there's so many boundaries are being pushed. And yeah. I think I think especially, like, middle grade, which is the um, age level that I mostly write for, um, so, like, upper elementary to middle school readers, that's, like, just such a creative space. There's really, like, it could be – your narrator could be a gorilla – or a dog, or an old man, or a kid, or, you know, anybody. Mm. It could be an adventure. It could be, you know, any type of genre. It could be written like a diary. It can be, I mean, you know, all sorts of themes, and people are really, like, pushing what sorts of topics they're tackling in middle-grade literature right now. So it's kind of an exciting space. It's very exciting. It's very, very diverse as well. And I think a lot of, you see a lot of middle-grade authors and, you know, of course, the last few years, there was this push for uh, more diverse authors, more diverse stories. You know, my friend Ellen O was one of the spearheads behind the We Need Diverse Books hashtag that be- that went from being a hashtag to an actual movement, to an actual organization to help diverse writers. And do you feel like right now is kind of like, you know, a golden period to be uh, a young adult middle grades children's author? Yeah, well, I, I definitely feel like things are changing and it's because people like Ellen O um, and We Need Diverse Books have been pushing and pushing and fighting so hard. Like, you know, I one of my novels that I'm kind of wrapping up and it's going to be my next novel to come out. It's called A Wish in the Dark. And it's a, a retelling of Les Miserables set in uh, like a fantasy-like Bangkok. And 
I just feel like that book would have been so considered so weird a few <laughs> years ago, you know, like it would have been so hard to sell that book. Like be like, what really? Like, what are you talking about? But that wasn't the case when we went out to sell it. I feel like, you know, some barriers got cracked open and people are just more, you know, looking for more authentic stories, looking for lots of different types of stories. There's also this huge acknowledgement from teachers and you know educators and librarians that oh hey kids who are of reading age right now are actually like mostly of color Mm -hmm. like the children's age population in america uh needs more books that represent them or or represent other people who they might be going to school with or interacting with you know like it can't just be the way that it's always been especially in like a genre like fantasy and you know you kind of touched on it earlier like the books we read growing up and we we're of similar age where we you know think of like J.R. Tolkien you know fantasy books are very much just analogs for like medieval Europe you know yes. like middle earth <laughs> is clearly Europe, uh, especially when you realize like all the people from the east and all the people from the south are like these swarthy brown people that you should be afraid of, and it's kind of like yes. it makes you, it makes you recontextualize Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh yes, I know. Yeah, going back and reading it again, you're like, huh? Wait, a, I didn't pick up, pick up on that. Wait, are we um, orcs? Is that what this? But um, yeah. but but it's so much in that kind of like fantasy has become almost synonymous with like European traditions that. What's so great about, you know, something like A Wish in the Dark or, you know, Ellen's prophecy book or you have The Children of Blood and Bone where you take fantasy trappings of like African cultures and Korean cultures and Europe isn't the sole domain of like fantasy, right? Yes, right. Absolutely. And you're so right. When I was growing up, that was it, you know, and I remember I remember so vividly reading books that I loved like for instance, Lord of the Rings. And like, I always like to try to imagine myself as a character. Like, like if I was reading Babysitter's Club, I would imagine myself as like, I'm one of the characters, Christina, she's this other babysitter. (laughs) And I remember like getting so frustrated because I just couldn't imagine myself in that story. There was just no, there were no people. It would not have made sense. Like I couldn't have come into the fellowship they would be like, what is this strange creature? Like, where, where are you from? <laughs> so it's, it's wonderful now that that's changing and kids are having so much more, so many more options. And that there's this recognition now um, that those books that are inspired by Africa, you know, or Asian cultures should be coming from people of those backgrounds or, you know, people who have those connections to those cultures because... There are just so many more rich and authentic storytelling that happens when it's that when that's the case. In your debut children's novel, The Changelings, what I found very fascinating about it is that you, you chose to write about shapeshifters. Yeah. And then when you're, you know, and I feel like, especially, again, as a person of color, you talked about, like, reading these fantasy books and not being able to see yourself. Like, you almost have to be a shapeshifter when you're a person of color growing up in, like, a small small rural town in the south oh keith you are so astute (laughs) (laughs) thank you that's all that's all i need we can end the podcast now i was just trying to fish for compliments is all you know i went through the whole process of writing that book and editing that book over like many years and i did not it did not click to me 
I had all, I was always in my head being like, this is a fun adventure story. Mm-hmm. And when it finally came out and people were reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> it's about a girl who doesn't belong in this world or another world. It's about shapeshifters. It's about people pretending to be someone they're not. Hello. <laughs> that was more autobiographical than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, right. Growing up as like the only Asian kid in the town, mm-hmm. you know, like um, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of shape shifting going on. And I, I feel like really my whole childhood and teenagehood, it was just really this battle of figuring out how to stand out and be unique versus really wanting to fit in so bad and like wanting to be this texas texas girl like all the other texas republican christian girls <laughs> that i went to school with you yeah, know yeah, yeah. and and being asian was like such a big part of my identity there not just because i was that i looked different but also my last name was so different. Mm-hmm. Nobody could ever say it. There were like a thousand jokes. I mean, I feel like every day I got a joke about my last name. Of course. Um, you know, sometimes like mean-spirited, but a lot of times like well, well-meaning. well Like it's just, <laughs> it was just different. And then also, you know, having my parents run the restaurant, that was just, that was who we were. We were like the Asian people with the Asian food, you know? Yeah. But then when I graduated and went off to college, and like, okay, I'm going to school with kids who grew up in Houston, and it's a more it's a more diverse group of people I'm going to college with. Oh, there's an Asian American club I could join. And then it hits me like, oh no, actually, you're not that Asian. You're <laughs> like the whitest person ever. Like you listen to country music. You, you know, you right, like right. grew up around all of these like white kids. Like you're, you know, so it's like a real a real kind of mind warp to figure out who I was. Yeah. Even being an Asian American who's, who doesn't have necessarily like an Asian American community, you know, cause I've talked about this on the podcast in the past with others that it's almost as if like my age, my Asian is didn't uh, stand out to me until I was among other Asians. I wasn't related to, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like when I was, when it was me and like, my mixed race cousins growing up in small town Virginia, like yes, everyone knew we were Asian. And in fact, not we weren't even Asian; we were Chinese, right? Like it was not even yeah. pan ethnic. <laughs> it was a very specific. You 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 identify with a very specific ethnicity. But then you know, halfway through high school, we moved similarly to like this more diverse part of the state where there were like Filipino people and uh, Korean people, you know, and 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 like. Asian Americans who had been around for like multiple generations and not just, you know, the children of immigrants. It was almost like a culture shock where, you know, you go in the cafeteria and you see like, wow, there's like a table full of Asian people and I'm not related to any of them. But yet, <laughs> but yet you can't go over there because they look at you like, who are you supposed to be? You know what I mean? So yeah, like it's, it's, right. it does really, you know, affect you more almost when you're, when you're, when you're actually among others that you didn't grow up around. I don't know. It's a yeah. weird yeah right it's so funny how innate that is in our human nature to just who you are and how you think of yourself is so defined by the rest of the group Mm -hmm. like you know i mean across all sorts of things of like race and gender and you know that's how you feel about being a woman is so different when you're in a group with all women versus like you're the Mm -hmm. only woman in the group which that's happened to me lots of times it's like you know as someone who works in the sciences and um yeah, it's just, it's really funny how how we're like that. 
<laughs> and how that can mess with you. <laughs> was college where you started kind of claiming your Asian Americanness more? Was that something like a product of being at university? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it started then. Man, I, I really feel like I've wrapped my head around around my identity more um, becoming an author mm-hmm. um, because for one thing, it's just I, I've connected with so many incredible authors of color and specifically Asian creators like Ellen, um, you know, even though, I mean, we've just connected online, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, like look, just looking up to authors I admire, like Lisa Yee or Mm -hmm. Celeste Ng and who like, you know, when I was growing up, I just could never find books like that. And so it's just been like open the floodgates and like, give me all the books like that now. But also the experience of when you're a children's author, you go into schools and you talk about your books. So you're standing up in front of kids and talking about what it's like to be an author. They're so curious about what it's like to write books. And so many of them are interested in in writing and illustrating and you want to push them and encourage them. And I've met kids or had emails from kids or from parents who have said, like, seeing your photo, your author photo on the back flap of the book got me so excited because you look like me. And Mm -hmm. I don't see that many authors who look like me. And you're just like, oh, wow, like, I need to, I need to figure this out and be able to communicate to kids in a way that, like, is really positive. So that's kind of, I think, pushed me to try to figure out how I feel about my identity and my background and reconcile my Asian Americanness with my, you know, my Texas, my mm-hmm. Texas roots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, I think like the last election caused everybody to have to like relook at all of that stuff yeah. again. Yeah. I think yeah. we're still figuring it out, of course. In order to figure mine out, I had to start a podcast and (laughs) talk to other people who had similar, (laughs) similar experiences. Like, what was it like for you growing up in the South? Um, But no, I think, and it it goes back to what you were saying about storytelling too, I think when, you know, you, you think about your identity more when you're telling stories, because that's what storytelling is, is telling your stories. And that's not necessarily something you may be doing when you're a, you know, when you're working in the STEM fields, or if you're like an engineer or a doctor or you know, office manager, like it's not necessarily something that you are constantly thinking of necessarily. I'm not saying you, you don't, right. I'm not saying there are, <laughs> there are identity lists, uh, you know, uh, office managers out in the world, but I'm, but, but when you're, like you said, having to stand in front of other people and tell your story, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard not to consider your identity when doing that. Yeah, totally. And then I think that when you're mixed, when your parents are two different races, you you are just kind of constantly, I don't think that ever goes away mm-hmm. of just trying to feel like, you know, what am I here? Mm-hmm. What am I now in this moment? But, and what am I overall? And I don't know, I don't think it ever, it doesn't ever re- reach a steady state. Yeah, it has, it hasn't for me reached a steady state. And then you know, the, and then the next the next books I have coming out are very, you know, focused in an Asian world, whether that's like fantastical world or like real world. Um, and so kind of just bringing all of that up again of like, how am I going to tell this story? Do I get to tell this story? And am I going to do this story right? Am I going to do this justice? Is that a, con- a conscious decision for your for your works to be more uh, kind of couched in like these 
uh, Asian coded fantasy worlds because I think with changelings it's not on the surface. I think a lot of what we were talking about is more meta textual than like textual textual. Totally, yeah, um, right. But but you know with with Wish in the Dark coming out and and you were saying you you have other works in in the pipeline. Is that like a conscious effort to be like more explicitly Asian coded in the in the worlds you're building? Well, I I think with Wish in the Dark, I don't. It wasn't like conscious decision and it just kind of came to me um as you know i i love the story of les mis that's why it's my my favorite book Mm -hmm. favorite musical (laughs) always wanted to do something with it but if you're going to tell it as a kid's book and you're going to be talking about like someone who's a convict running away from the police Mm -hmm. and you're you know it's kind of gritty it's kind of dark the characters are going to be going through a lot who you know that's not going to be like a kid from the suburbs in here to me right, right so like so i you know i think about like the stories of my dad talking about growing up in bangkok and like being a kid in bangkok and that you know a long time ago and how tough and how grown up you already were when you were 10 11 years old so that it just made sense to me it just clicked that that would make sense for that story so i don't know if it's a conscious decision but i think i also like you know, my first books, they were set in a more Western setting. You know, the main character is Caucasian. And I think that that felt most comfortable for me at that time. Mm-hmm. But then having the experience of, okay, I have two books under my belt now. I feel more confident as a writer. I feel more comfortable kind of pushing myself and opening up and taking some risks and doing something that isn't like every other book I've ever read as a kid. So I think that that was a big part of wh- where to set that book. What's interesting too, because we when when you think of like these stories that are specifically set, whether whether it's like a, a, a world you build or or in the real world as you mentioned, especially here in America, here in the West, they, they find a way to not tell it through the perspective of the people of color that it's about <laughs> you know yeah. uh-huh. um and and so like you know of course there was the the story recently of the soccer team in thailand who were who were trapped in a cave and, and and miraculously were rescued and you know as soon as the good news came out i think immediately hollywood was like we're gonna do a movie about this and mm-hmm. it's gonna be like from the perspective of like the one white guy <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. just happened to be like just walking by um and of course you know when that happened john m chu the director of crazy rich asians was like Nah, we're gonna do our own story. Like there was like these these competing stories, and it's this idea that like you know people of color can't tell our own stories. You have a story about that story in in the works as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. Um, I was uh, so I was visiting my family who lives in Thailand. Um, my dad lives over there for most of the year, so I was there when the boys were in the cave, mm. and it was just like. I mean, the craziest experience to be there at that time. It just took over the country. It's hard to, it's really hard to come up with a parallel here of like a story that meant so much where you're just watching television constantly. The television's just on and running nonstop footage of this story and everyone's talking about it. I can't, I can't think of a, of a parallel of a current event that happened here where the entire country, you know, maybe like locally something would happen and everybody would be into it. But yeah, I mean, just, it really felt like everyone, you know, people were, just crying talking about it they were so just so worried like everyone was it was like it was your own cousin who was in there or something it was very emotional um and then we flew back over here before right before they started bringing them out 
So I, I remember I was just like checking my phone. Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night and check my phone because of the time change and just to see what had happened with them. And, and, um, and I didn't even think about, about writing a book, about doing anything until they were all out. And then, of course, you start hearing, yes, so-and-so company is going over there trying to get the film rights. Oh, here's another company trying to get the mm-hmm. film rights. Right. And then when John M. Chu, um, his company went in and he was super vocal about the reason and just saying, I remember he said, you know, I might not even direct it. This might not even be my movie. I just want my company to be there. I want someone to be there. And with the conscious effort of we're going to tell the story right and not leave out this really important part of the story, which is that those kids who are in the cave were Thai Mm -hmm. and the coach is Thai and the families are Thai. And, you know, the most of the people who are responding there are Thai, even though like, you know, the, the British team and the international teams and, you know, there's us air force who are there, there are people all over the world who are there playing a really important role. Like the, the children would not be out without them. But I think it's the fear that, it's going to become a savior type yeah, of narrative exactly. when, when it really was a c- complete collaboration, even with the children, they were collaborating. If the children had not been who they were and had the strength that they had, that would have not been successful, you know? So I just felt like I remember contacting my agent and being like, I don't even know if I can do this. I, <laughs> I just want to do I just want someone with the Thai background to tell this and over the course of the next few days I like changed to where like yes I I am totally the one who I want to do this but at the time it was like same feeling I feel like so simpatico with John M. (laughs) Drew of like I just want someone to go in and like try to save one story I know there's going to be so many books but there's got to be one book it makes sure From it their gets per- it right. Perspective. Right. right. Uh, because I, I think it's uh, Phil Yu of Angry Asian Man who's famously said, like, it doesn't matter what story in any time period and any place in the world, uh, white people find a way to make it be about them. Yeah. <laughs> and, that was, and that's probably what would have happened if... if yeah. Because, uh, I, I mean, I think that's what they even announced, like, that, that initial... Thai cave movie announcement was like it's going to be from the perspective of like the uh the white guy who was down the street you know what i mean yeah. it's always uh-huh. like tom hanks will play tom hanks as scholar johansson will play <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i know right and i mean we joke about it but i think you know just the feeling of there's so few depictions of thailand and thai people in western media mm-hmm. and it's always from that perspective of the west it's through that lens you know like the king and the king, i right. and the beach that's like pretty much all i can think of right <laughs> now you know and it's it's it gets to a point where you're like you know i i don't want this story told by someone else i want it to be told by people like us um and and why shouldn't why shouldn't our voices get heard and also like for the i think there's this really big recognition now from consumers that i'm not black but like i want to go see black panther created Mm -hmm. by black director writers actors like that's just a better story it's just a better movie 
when right. it's done that way. And I think, you know, like Crazy Rich Asians has been number one at the box office for this many weeks. It's not because like Asian people keep going to see it again right. and again and again, you know. Well, that's part it's, of it. <laughs> I've seen it three times. I'm just saying. That's part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's just so good. It's so good because it was done the right way with the people who should be telling it. And it dispels the myth that, you know, you need to have, you need to include this white character. And, and they, they, Hollywood won't call it a white character. They'll say the everyman so that someone can relate because, yeah. you know, the idea is that we can only relate to the white character because that's just been the default for the last, you know, however many hundred years in Western storytelling that the idea that, you know, you don't even need or that or that the, the person of color, the Asian American can be the everyman or every woman in, in Rachel Chu's case in Crazy Rich Asians, right? Like the stories of she needed to be a white character so that people could relate. And Kevin Kwan kind of like saying that I'm not going to do I'm not going to do that movie, you know? Right. Uh, right. Or, or yeah. with uh, Jenny Han saying like people telling her that, you know, Lara Jean has to be white to make this movie. Like totally. standing firm and saying, no, we can be the you know, we can be the every every person in in the the eyes of the audience even even if we're not white like i think that's the most powerful thing that um is coming out in this kind of new era we're living in this post black panther post crazy rich asians um at least in hollywood i feel like you know your industry is kind of a little bit more ahead of the curve than hollywood there's been more a push for more women more people of color telling stories in like the lit world and i think it's slowly transferring to like mainstream hollywood yeah it's still there's still, still not great still a ways to go. <laughs> yeah. you know yeah and I, I i totally know what you're saying um i think there's still there's a really really big and often heated discussion about about who should tell what story mm-hmm. in kidlet like and it's it's still going and it's <laughs> <laughs> um it's uh, broken a lot of friendships. It's made a lot of people upset, but it's such an important conversation to have. And, you know, with even with, you know, this type cave book, it's going to be it's a nonfiction book. And mm-hmm. I think there's some thoughts of like, oh, well, if it's nonfiction, you know, it's current events. It's going to be about science. It's going to be about history. It's going to be about you know, stuff that it's facts. Mm-hmm. And so who should, why does it matter who tells facts? Facts are facts. And that's really, you know, every, everything is story. Everything gets filtered through culture. Um, every, everything that's created goes through a lens mm-hmm. and the person who's telling it, it's impossible for them to take themselves out completely. Yeah. I know? mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about like, there's no such thing as a, like, first of all, like that's code for, the white author is the neutral objective voice. Exactly. You know, and that's what, re- that's what they're really trying to say. And, 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 you know, I mean, you know, we were talking about identity earlier and, and, you know, kind of talking about politics a little bit, but like that whole notion of identity politics being only the, the, the domain of like people of color or LGBT is as if like white people don't have identities themselves, you know, right. as if, as if like the whole last presidential campaign wasn't all identity politics from that side of the aisle, you know, right? Like, like the, the idea that like only white people can be neutral, objective observers of the world is, is the, is a fallacy is a misconception. Like not, not that they can't be objective, but that their objectivity is also influenced by their perspective of the world. It's not that they don't sit outside of culture. Uh, they're part yes. of it as well. 
Yeah, totally. They're, it's just that they've had the voice of the main, you know, in the mainstream, the mm-hmm. dominant voice yeah. for so long. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we, we usually end every podcast, as you know, uh, talking about our favorite food memories growing up, because if there's anything Asians and Southerners have in common is that we both have uh, an inordinate amount of food <laughs> in our culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and you've, you've hinted earlier about growing up in a Thai restaurant and craving Thai iced tea when you're in the middle of, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and, you know, growing up in your parents' restaurant, you, first of all, you mentioned your parents, it started out as like a Chinese American restaurant. And then like, they subtly started like adding pad thai to the menu. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Pad thai was always on the menu. <laughs> it just had a different name. It was called like Royal Noodles or something <laughs> like that. And people were like, oh, I love these Royal Noodles. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we always had stuff on there. We just had to give it a different name. Yeah. yeah. yeah so if I have to think about uh, food that takes me back. Oh, yeah. It's got to be, of course, food from my parents' restaurant. Yeah. Let me ask you two questions. Like, what was the best seller on the menu? What was, like, everyone... Like, so, like, my parents' restaurant, everyone loved our black bean chicken. Oh, yeah. What What that was the dish that good. everyone else loved, and then what was the dish that you loved? Okay. All right. Well, of course, the dish everybody... The best seller, sweet and sour chicken. Okay. And I say that as someone who manned the phones for to-go <laughs> to go orders. I know. So you did I'll, have to... You had to put the book down once in a while and actually pick up the Yeah. Book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll be like, I know what you're going to order. You're going to order the sweet and sour chicken. <laughs> and, um... But... But actually, you know, one big favorite on the menu was kapow, which mm-hmm. is like it's like mac and cheese for Thailand <laughs> is chicken kapow. It's like a comfort food. It's like stir fried with like garlic, basil, chilies, chicken, like just and you serve it over rice with like a fried egg. And people loved that in Weatherford. And it's not it's not like a really super common Thai food like, you know, pad Thai. I feel like everybody right, right. knows that. But people in Weatherford, I can't remember what we called it. Maybe we called it like sizzling chicken or something like that when it was on the menu when I was a kid. But that was that was the one that everybody loved. And the restaurant does it so well. By the way, Golden Moon Restaurant in Weatherford. Visit goldenmoon.com. Still around? Best. The restaurant's still around? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Still around. 35 cool. years. That's awesome. But and then I have to say that when the you know when the kids got out of the cave in Thailand and they were talking about what was their number one food they were craving, and that that was the dish. So I just think I was like I when they you know just thinking about all of these cowboy people in Weatherford, sure. Texas were also craving the same foods. That's it's awesome. like you know it's like a cool food brings everyone together. Yeah, you know there you go. Did so in the in the thirty five years since have they updated the menu so that it, it, that the, the names of the dishes are more uh, authentic or is it still sizzling chicken and royal noodles? <laughs> Some some of those are the same. I, think, I wonder if we I wonder if we still have chicken fried steak on the menu. For a long Ooh, time, we had it on the menu. That's it was awesome. like a yeah, <laughs> but uh, but right, we have pad thai on the menu now, and people actually know how to come in and order it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a different world from when we were growing up, man. I'm telling you, like oh, so different. <laughs> like personally, I never had this, but you know, there's there's the 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 lunchbox moment that so many Asians talk about when they, especially when they go to school with a lot of non Asians that. You you know you bring you bring your mother's food or your father's food to school and and you know everyone freaks out about it like oh yes that never actually happened to me but 
you know, it but, didn't. You never took like leftovers for lunch. No, you know, I think part of the reason it never happened to me is I just bought school lunch growing up. Oh, <laughs> I never okay. actually brought a lunchbox, so that's that's one reason why it never happened. Although I will say, the closest to a, like a lunchbox moment I had was actually when I went to was I was in high school, right? And, and it wasn't a lunchbox moment per se, but like I worked my parents' restaurant. You know, I'd, I'd worked ever since I was a little kid. Asians don't believe in child labor laws. I know. <laughs> and so, like, you know, my jacket would smell like the restaurant. Oh, my and, gosh. And, yes. And you wouldn't, you don't, you don't realize it, right? Right. Um, so my, my jacket would probably smell like, you know, a weekend's worth of Chinese food. And I remember going into, like, the computer lab on Monday with my jacket on and the guy sitting next to me just, like, turned up his nose and gave me a look. And that was probably the closest to, like, a lunchbox moment I ever had. Oh, yeah. But I say all that to say, like, my daughter growing up now, she does bring, like, sushi to school. She brings onigiri to school. And no one says anything. Like, it's actually, it's cool to, like, have, you know, like, musubi in your lunchbox. Like, have it, like, actual bento box and bring it to school. Like, people were... People are totally cool with it. And I feel like that's that's an era that we're in now that we weren't in when you and I were growing up. Totally. Oh, that's so awesome. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, but and I and I agree. Yeah, kids are they're just exposed to so much more. It's just so much more global now, mm-hmm. which is great. It gives me hope. Yeah. Christina, <laughs> this has been such a fun conversation. Um, if people want to have online interactions with you, what's the best way to follow you on the Internet? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter as Soontornvat, which is my last name. And Instagram as csoontornvat. And then soontornvat.com is my website. Wish in the Dark comes out next year or? That'll all, all the, everything will come out in 2020. (laughs) I have like, I have like five books coming out in 2020. (laughs) It's just, it takes so, it's just the timing in Kidlet is so funny how long it takes to make a book. Yeah. Well, we're definitely on the lookout for that. Thank you so much for for being on the podcast. It was such a fun time talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Keith. It was great to talk to you. This was really fun. Big thanks to Christina for joining us on Southern Fried Asian. Thank you out there for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Southern Asians and on Instagram at Southern Fried Asians. Go to hardknockmedia.com to find this podcast as well as Hard Knock Life. Ask by Girls, Daisy Geek Girls, We're Not All Ninjas, That Moment, and Tarvis. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, the NPR One app, and the TuneIn Premium app. Please rate and review. Leave us a comment. As always, Southern Fried Asian is produced by Jess Vu. You can find me on Twitter at TheRealChow, the underscore real underscore chow. And until next time, keep it Southern Fried, y'all.